0: Well, if you were with us last week, uh, you know we started this look at First Peter by going back to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And um, we looked at the challenge of what does it mean to be a believer in Babylon? Babylon was actually a city, uh, but it's a metaphor in the scriptures for that city that is uh, most unlike Christ, that place that is uh, so attractive to those uh, who walk this earth, including followers of Christ, uh, but really is the antithesis of what God wants to do. And so the question is, for them, when God took them into exile, removed them from Israel and put them there as a a way to to discipline them and draw them back to his heart, the question was, what do you do? Do you assimilate into the culture, become just like a Babylonian? That's what the Babylonians wanted, just meld with us. Uh, Do you isolate yourself and retain all the look and the feel, the clothing and the style and the language of what it meant to be a Jew in that time? Uh, or do you find a, a third way? Do you do you live in the city? Do you move in the city? Do you work in the city? But you're not a part of the city. Uh, really, you permeate the culture, and that's what God is calling us to be about. I, I walked with a friend a couple of weeks ago downtown Hillsboro, and he had contacted me, and we reached out to one another, and we were talking about the challenge of the cancel culture. And uh, if you uh, have followed that, it's a hyper politically correct. A world, we live in, and if you do not toe the line in so many ways, uh, you're canceled, which is a fascinating thought. Um, you're just basically nullified from the planet. I, I don't know how it works, but you know, if you don't say the right things, if you don't do the right things, and the pressure that um, the businesses, those who follow Christ and those leaders, have on conforming to standards of this world, to expectations of the world. And yet, as I was talking and and, and hanging out with this just amazing guy and his love for his city, his love for his workers, his love for uh, the business he has and for Christ, you know, I was just reminded of the fact that we've walked this journey for 2,000 years. You know, since the very beginning of Christianity, uh, it has been a danger to walk the path of Jesus. The first 300 years of Christ was uh, just really, you follow Jesus and you're going to be persecuted. It wasn't constant, but it was this steady rhythm of waves of persecution that swept over the church. And there were times when you prayed to receive Christ and follow Christ, when you stood up and declared your allegiance to Christ versus an allegiance to Caesar. You were immediately killed. You were thrown to the lions. You were beheaded. You were burned at the stake. Uh, if you've ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's it's powerful. It's a challenge, but it was a powerful book to read because what you see there are people who are faithful to Jesus and choose faithfulness to Jesus over faithfulness to Caesar. And even today, even today, the reality is, is that people around the world are being persecuted. Statistics tell us that in the 20th century, more people died for the sake of Christ than those first 300 years. In fact, the first 19 centuries before that. And and it should cause us to wake up and realize that following Jesus does cost us something. Uh, Now, you you might have experienced this. You probably feel some of that tension. In fact, I was thinking about it a couple weeks ago. I thought, how are modern-day Christians feeling this intense Fox's Book of Martyrs persecution? So I wrote down a couple thoughts. Uh, You know, uh, some of you feel this way, that you're being persecuted for Jesus because someone disagreed with you on Facebook or social media. Uh, someone didn't like your post or your tweet. Um, someone disagreed with something that you said online. They weren't even nice about it, right? And uh, you think that if there were f- a few pages left in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you would be included in that, right? Or another one, how uh, you, you're upset about how Christians are portrayed in the media and films and movies and things like that. Uh, that the, the, you know, the personification of a follower of Jesus is pretty bad in our world today. It's displayed that way. And uh, you know, it almost causes you to run to the catacombs and hide because tense persecution against that or uh here's a big one people challenge your politics Uh, someone disagreed with you on facebook somehow someone has the audacity to counter your belief that god has anointed a particular person for office and standing up for that politician has become the new form of persecution right and when will your fellow americans stop rejecting god's anointed savior on capitol hill right Now, I say all those in jest, but the fact is, is that there is a reality that we have to grip and and hold on to as followers of Jesus, and it's simply this. We don't fit in this world. We were never designed to fit in this world. We live in this world. we, We move in this world. We live in this world we're supposed to be comfortable in this world. We were not designed to be people that walk like everybody else. We are different from those people. The world in which you and I live is hopelessly broken. We know that. It has fallen apart. As I said last week, uh, people who walk this earth, maybe even those who rage against God or rage against authority, they're not the enemy, but they are the victim of the enemy. The enemy is Satan himself. And as followers of Jesus, we know that the challenge of living in this place, uh, to see people, to see politics, to see views, to see the pain, is a challenge for us. When I was in fifth grade, uh, it, you know, it came to my attention that I couldn't see very well. Uh, the, 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 you know, the chalkboard was blurry. And so my mom took me and, and we went, my, my brother and I, we went and got glasses. And for the first time, I put those glasses on and then and, and I could see clearly. And it was an amazing wake-up call that I could focus in and see. And I could study and I could be attentive to something because I could see clearly. And then in 1996, so 20 years later... Uh, I got contacts, and that was just different. In fact, it was funny because a couple years ago, there was uh, one of my wife's friends was at our home, and uh, she was walking around, and she was seeing some some things, and my wife has all these pictures, you know, of our wedding, and uh, the gal looked, you know, kind of quizzical at the pictures, and she said, "Uh, Mary Beth, who's that guy? (laughs) And she goes, (laughs) my wife's great, she goes, oh, that's my first husband, (laughs) And the gal's like, really? You were married before James? She goes, no, that's James, my first husband. And I just looked different, and I got contacts. And then a few years later, my wife and I had laser surgery, and we could see clearly. It's been an amazing journey. And then something happened. What is it? uh, Old age, that's what it is. Now I need reading glasses, you know? But what would it look like if we could have our vision corrected to see like Jesus saw this earth? You know, if Jesus were to plop himself down here today uh, amidst the chaos and confusion of the world, he would do what he did back then 2,000 years ago. He would love the least, the last, and the lost. He would care for people. He wouldn't get involved in politics. He wouldn't get involved in Caesar's world. Uh, he would fight against the religious people who want to uh, be more about truth and not about grace at all. And he would come alongside people that are hurting and broken, and he would gather them to himself, but he would say to them what he said to us, is that this world is no longer your home, that you have been brought out of this world, and so your affections should be for a different world, a different place. Last week in starting this with First Peter, we look at, at a, just a couple verses in chapter 2, and I want to you know, draw your attention back to those who remind you. Peter says this, dear friends. I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, that's, that's who we are. We're temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. This war world we live in is the antithesis of God's hope and desire for us. So just, you know, realize this is a reality. This is a battle we face But keep away from those desires. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. See, the reality is is that Peter writes and uh, whether he knows it or not, we don't don't know that he knows it, but maybe the Spirit revealed it to him. But what he's gonna write and what he's gonna put out in his letter and as it's gonna go to these scattered believers, uh, the truth is is that whatever difficulty they're facing now, it's going to be a hundred times worse in less than one year. The persecution of Nero is going to sweep over the world, and Christianity is going to be outlawed. And, And so he writes to these people by reminding them that they are strangers, they're aliens, they're temporary foreigners. This world is not our home. The Bible says we are citizens of heaven. And even though it's kind of hard to remember that, I, I know for me it's hard to remember that, uh, the affections of this world will only pull us away from the, the clear, crystal clear vision that God wants us to have. Peter writes to people who had to flee from their cities because of belief in Jesus, and he writes to encourage them. He writes to uh, give them a model of how they could live. But he says along the way, basically, in my summary is, don't get too attached to this world. Don't, don't get too excited about this world because this world is not your permanent place. You're not your permanent resident residence. For me, though, it's hard to remember that. Because I live and I, I move and I drive and I survive and, and I participate like everybody else. And, and sometimes I forget. I'll be honest, I forget to lift up my eyes and realize that this world it should not be comfortable for me. It should not be a place that draws my heart to its full satisfaction. Peter writes about persecution, and he better basically says this. It's time to put on a new set of glasses. It's time for us to see crystal clear how Jesus would see in the world today. Now, he starts his letter with these words. In uh, chapter 1, he says, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living, and here it is, as foreigners, in the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing. They're scattered. But he says, I'm writing to you. You're God's chosen people. We're going to see more about that next week, what that means to be chosen by God. But he says, you who are living as foreigners in that land. He says, God the Father knew you. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. Again, we'll see a whole lot more about that next week. And his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Just a little side note. uh, Here you clearly see the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working in perfect harmony in our salvation and the working out of that. It's beautiful. He says, may God give you more and more grace and peace. A number of years ago, I changed, uh, you know, just the, the salutation on all my letters and emails and everything just to that grace and peace because I I need that. I need grace. I I need to give grace. I need peace. I need to be a person who brings peace. So Peter starts, and he says basically this, you're God's chosen people. But as God's chosen people, uh, I I just want to tell you something. This world is not your home. Uh, Peter uses a word here that in in our language, we can't accurately translate it uh, word for word, Uh, And the word foreigner is not a bad translation, it's just not a complete translation. Uh, A better way to say it would be a resident alien, a resident alien, you're a resident immigrant. You live in this community, or you live in this city, or you live in this country, and you have papers that allow you to do everything everybody else does. You buy a home, you run a business, you go to school. Uh, You have rights to do that, but ultimately you have an identity, a passport with a visa, as it were, to be here. Now, you're not just a tourist. You're not just going and looking at all the postcards. You're not just kind of checking out all the trinkets, right, and just taking the snapshots. You have decided to stay here. You have decided to take up residence here. This is where God has you. But there's a longing in your heart. There's a knowledge in your soul that it just doesn't feel right. Well, that's good because it shouldn't feel right, that there should be a dissonance in the very center of who we are as a follower of Jesus, that the more we are attracted to this world, the more it would draw our attraction away from Christ. The more we align ourselves with uh, whatever is going on in the world, the social things, the political things, maybe even the religious things of the world, the less we align to what God has and what God would say about those things. I wrote a couple thoughts down. I wanted to read them to you. You You're not simply a tourist. You're not Just, you know, that person. You're living in another country. If you've had the pleasure of traveling overseas, you know what it's like to see history or other places and other languages, and you hear that and you participate in that. But you know there's a little awkward. It's kind of fun to be in those places. Uh, But you get a little tired, right? Uh, Because you want to go home. Just this week alone, uh, I, with, you know, with my job with uh, Conservative Baptist Northwest, I was in Salem at a meeting with pastors, I was in Vancouver, I was in Spokane, and I was in Missoula, Montana. And uh, the reality is, I love all that. I love those, those guys, those gals, the leaders of churches. I love that. But man, when I got home, it was, it was just great to be home. It just felt good. Um, I uh, I'd been, I'd drove nine hours, and so I just went and I just crashed. I just laid, you know, laid down in my bed. I just took a nap, and it's just like, man, it feels good to be in my own bed. Um, it just feels awesome to see my wife and my kids. I ignore my cats, you know, things like that. We have a roommate, just a great guy, and it's like good to be back in that place. Uh, I, I love being gone. I love journeying, and I love being a part of that for the church's sake, But there's nothing like being home. And Peter, as he writes, he is going to describe this life that, yeah, it's fun to be here. There's some cool stuff here. There's some great things. But this world is not our home. And if we try to get comfortable here, if we try to align ourselves to whatever is going on here, we're going to miss out on the true riches and the joy of being a resident alien, a temporary stranger and foreigner. Uh, the Apostle Paul said this. He said this in Philippians 3.20. He says, we are citizens of heaven. You and I, were citizens of heaven. Now, that's kind of awkward because I, I don't look around and see it, right? We live in this world. We move in this world. But we're really citizens of heaven. And we eagerly wait, wait for him to return as our Savior. So here we're engaged. We participate. I mean, you know, but we're not home. We're not ultimately home. We're not ultimately satisfied. We walk in two worlds, but we're not quite quite at home. And so what does it look like for you and for me to live and move and exist in this world for all of our days here, however many days there are, but to never lose sight of the glimpse of an eternal home, to always have this tension inside of us, that no matter how you know much glitter is going on here in this world, but we keep our focus on the gold of heaven, Uh, if, If you read the book of Hebrews, the writer expresses it really well when the writer says this, describing all these people of faith. He says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. And he had been talking about people like Abraham and Noah, and you could go through all of the story of the Old Testament people of faith and the amazing things they did for God. They had ups and downs, just like you and me. And they had a lot of promises. God said specifically these things, and yet the truth is they didn't get all of it, because they weren't supposed to get all of it. Because you can't get all of it here. He says they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Wouldn't that be awesome if we just we just all we just collectively agreed? We just every day we got up and we agreed. Today I agree that I am a foreigner and nomad here on the earth. That. All that God's promised will not come true here in the earth. It can't. There's no way the earth and this world we live in could contain all that God has for us. The writer goes on to say this. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they would have gone back, right? Abraham, uh, he, would have, he could have gone back to Ur the Chaldees. He could have just gone back to comfort, right? To all that world, the safety of that world. But God moved him out of comfort onto a mission, and so he was never fully satisfied. He walked as a foreigner. He traveled a land, but he was never truly home. He says, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland, a heavenly city. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so as challenging as it is, and I'm a pastor and I study this and I've read this over and over again, and I'm sure you struggle too, but as challenging as it is, there are days we probably should put on the lenses of Jesus, the lenses of Abraham and Moses and Noah and all those people, and once again look around and go, it's nice, it's shiny, it's bright, but it's a tourist trap. You ever been in one of those tourist traps? Uh, I, I stopped in one in Missoula, I was looking, or just outside of Missoula, I was looking for some stickers for my sons, and um And I I used to travel with my family, uh, Route 66, down in the south there, and uh, man, the tourist traps were amazing down there in New Mexico and Long Arizona, and they could just suck you in, and they could sell you trinkets, and you could get so excited, and you could hop back in the car and, you know, go for those things, but they fell apart quickly, right? Because that's, that's what a tourist trap is. If I can hold on to you long enough to get your money, great, I've got something from you. My friends, that's what the world offers us, just nothing but trinkets. Now, the people of this world, they're dearly loved by God. And they're not not objects of our wrath. They're people we would love and we would come alongside of and point to Jesus. But, but when you think about your life, it, does what the writer say here describe your perspective? That you are looking for something beyond this world, and so you're never fully satisfied with what the world offers? As an exile, as a foreigner, as a, a resident alien... Are you growing more and more aware of how being a follower of Christ should make a difference and actually make you more and more different than the people of this world? Have you traded, though, your identity as a follower of Christ for the love of this world? Is there a difference between you and all the people around you? Not not because you're better than them, because you're not. You've been saved by grace, not by works. It's this faith that you walk a journey of. But is it making you more and more and more like Jesus? And in doing so, it's causing you to be seen differently than you were before. In the Old Testament, there's this word for sanctification, and it literally means to be made holy. But the picture is this idea of a road to holiness, a road to holiness. I love that. How are you doing on the road to holiness? Holiness just means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be more like God, to be removed from, to be set aside special for, right? How are you doing on the road to holiness? Have you decided to pull off and get caught in a tourist trap? Because there's a lot more God is calling us to. He is calling us to be holy because He is holy. One of my struggles is sometimes I get so attached to this world because I, I, I just... I think there's some beautiful things here. There's some amazing things here. There's some wonderful technologies here. I, I get caught up in this. I get caught up in, in seeing those things. And as I do that, sometimes I find that I've traded my service for Christ to a preoccupation with something that's really just going to pass, something that's going to fall apart. I think that when you keep your focus and your eyes on Jesus, and and that road to holiness, and you walk down there always looking for the city that is not of this earth, a place that is not here, this life is not, it's not gonna satisfy you. I mean, there'll be some great things about it, but it will not ultimately meet the deep satisfaction of your heart. But that's kind of how it should be because this world is not our home. Um, You know, when I think about everything fitting everything belonging, everything falling into place. This world will never do that for you and for me. Try as we might, it will never just be fully complete. I have a, a Rubik's Cube from the 70s or 80s, whenever it came out, and um, my boys you know, saw it and they found it and they started working it out. And uh, one of my sons got it you know, quickly and he was able to put it together. But it's kind of like that. It, it's got colors, it's shiny, it's got all the squares. And, and you know, you, you, you just realize that, if you've ever done it, it's really kind of cool. You work it out and you see the, the, the algorithms and the past and everything. And all of a sudden with one move, it just clicks. Everything falls into place. Nothing will fall into place here. But what will fall into place is when you finally see him face to face, then everything will be complete. And so let's not strive for satisfaction here. Let's not strive for contentedness here. Let's not strive to be fully like everybody else here, we should be a different group of people. Uh, Miroslav Wolf, in his book, um, Exclusion and Embrace, writes it this way. He says, at the very core of Christian, Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty. From a given culture, with its gods, to the God of all cultures, Jesus himself. In America, our identity is often based upon our race, our national... Uh, did you take the census? i our family did the census. What are all the questions, right, about age groups, about categories? Um, if you expand that a little bit, uh, the way we identify with people is by a political party or by a sports, you know, team, uh, whatever that might be. And we, we you know, we wear the colors and we wear all that. We fly those flags and uh, we love those things and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I'm not saying that. But we, we align ourselves, we give our allegiance to something, and we're known by that. And, and that's great, that's fine. But ultimately, have we given our allegiance over to something, to someone who actually is changing us? And, and friends, I'm just going to say this, but just because you go to church or just because you're here this weekend, or just because you're watching online or just because you call yourself a Christian or just because you grew up in church or your parents were Christians or whatever, you might have aligned with the church, but maybe you haven't come to know Jesus Christ. The deepest desire of my heart as your pastor or all of our staff and all of our workers, all that we do with programming and all that we do with our events is so that you would come to discover it's not religion. It's not an outward form. It's an inward relationship with Jesus Christ. And when that clicks, then you are different and you have a different hope and you have a different reality. Doesn't mean you stop being who you are. Doesn't mean you stop liking your sports team. It doesn't mean you stop being a teacher or an engineer or whatever. It just means that internally you're different and you have a new compass point. You have a new true north. I shared this before when we were going through another series, but the early church. The early followers of Jesus made such a difference in their world because their internal compass shifted. And therefore, externally, they became different people. And in some ways, they were odd, they were peculiar, they were strange. But they were strangely attractive by the way they lived their lives. There were specifically four areas that brought them uh, strangeness. They were um, offensive in some ways yet attractive because of the way they believed. And the first uh, area that radically changed when a person came to Christ was this forgiveness of offenses. Now, in in that day, um, and and there are still cultures like this today, but it was a shame-honor culture. And so when somebody, uh, you know, offended you or shamed you, they did something against you. The only way to right that wrong uh, was through this shame-honor system. And it it meant it was incredible violence. There was incredible uh, retaliation because of things. That you rightly, in the culture, had the ability to destroy that person or their character or their home or their family. And the only way to get back was to actually get back. It was a pound of flesh for everything. And followers of Jesus come along and uh, they echo the words of Jesus. As, as they have been forgiven, now they go forgive others. As God has forgiven us of our sins, we forgive others of sins. And that disrupted the culture. It upset people. It changed the values. Um, so much so that within uh, a few hundred years, the shame-honor culture of that Roman Empire shifted. And now is a culture of grace and forgiveness. I love that because you think about whatever our culture is dealing with today... What would it look like for followers of Jesus to have an internal compass that's different? So much so that the way we act, yeah, is offensive, but it's actually strangely compelling because it's a much better life. That was one of the ways uh, followers of Christ were different. Uh, another one was radical generosity. Again, in the shame on our culture, in this system that you lived in the Roman Empire, you only uh, would uh, grab things above you. And you would not grab people behind you to pull them up. You were always climbing the ladder of success for yourself. And uh, that meant that finances, you held on to them unless it made you a better person or made you look better in public eye. But you you know, you know, might have some alms for the poor because it's a good religious thing to do. But it was just a small amount, just to look good in the public eye. But followers of Jesus, they were radically changed. Their generosity was really just an expression of God's generosity to them. And they poured out their resources and their time. And you could read this in history. Uh, Again, they they brought in orphans. They brought in widows. They called people their own family. They brought them in. Uh, Young men and women who had been trafficked as slaves, they, they, they brought them in. Sometimes they bought them and bought them as now members of their family. And they taught them the way of Christ. And they began to change the culture of the Roman world From a scarcity mindset of, I'm getting it for myself, to an abundance mindset of, uh, you know, we can give everything we have away because God will richly provide for us. Another way was they, they faced death with suffering, death and suffering with cheerfulness. In that Roman world, this life was all you had, and so you held on to it, you clung to it, you didn't give it up lightly. But when followers of Jesus were persecuted and they were to the point of death and suffering, they willingly went to their death. They they sang as they were being crucified. They quoted the words of Scripture as they were being mocked. They echoed the words and the life of Jesus and the way he forgave on the cross because they did not know what they were doing. Followers of Jesus were willing to go through persecution and suffering and even death because they knew this world was not their final resting place. And then finally, the last way, they were different. Offensive and yet strangely attractive is in the idea of sexual purity. Very promiscuous culture. The Greeks believed the body, you know, wasn't that important. and What mattered was mind and soul. And so they could just abuse their body sexually. It didn't really matter. It was just a normal bodily appetite. There were no morals attached to it. You did whatever you wanted to do because sex was just a way to pursue an earthly pleasure. And followers of Jesus came along and said, no, 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 no. Sexuality is something that God has given us as a gift. And, and you want a full expression of sexuality? It's in a total commitment with one person in a, in a form of marriage that you would stay chaste because you are experiencing something that's different than what the people of the world have. Christians had an incredibly high view of sexuality. And as a result, it offended a lot of people. But people saw it strangely working out when they saw the commitment of marriages. You know, these four ways might not be the four ways we express our faith today. I hope the last one, that's for sure. Um, but, But maybe the radicalness of our followers of Christ in the world today might express itself a little differently. Maybe there are a couple more points we could add to it. But the fact is it takes courage to walk that journey. It, it, it takes compassion to be truly attractive for Christ. So how are you doing in the tension of living as a resident alien, a foreigner, a stranger, temporary? Um, do you wrestle with the tension of digging your roots so deep down in this earth that you forget that this is all going to pass away? Because I, I'm, I, I struggle too, but I'm, a, I'm firmly convicted of this especially in this age of this world is that the more we as followers of Jesus Christ cling to the stuff of this earth the more we're going to lose our influence for Christ the more worthless we'll be the more our message won't mean a thing because we don't look any different than those that don't follow Christ John Fisher a Christian artist musician and writer he wrote this and I want to close with this and then pray the tension of Christians and culture. I love this. You can download this if you go to our website. Uh, the message is you can click this and you can download this if you w- wish. He says this is a challenging time to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, because there's a big difference between being a cultural Christian and a Christian in culture. Uh, one is concerned with policy. The other is concerned with people. Uh, one wants to create a separate world. The other seeks to inform and change the world they live in. One is concerned with safety, the other relishes danger. One is driven by fear, the other is driven by hope. One is against the world, the other loves the world as Christ loved the world. One is not in, but of the world, the other is not of the world, but lives in the world. One creates a subculture, an alternative to this world, and enjoys that. The other seeks to make a contribution to change the world around them. One majors on morality. The other majors on grace. One is bigger and getting small. One is big and getting smaller. The other is small and getting bigger. One champions differences and rights. The other champions similarities and responsibility. One judges, the other accepts. One blames, the other forgives. One is proud, the other is humble. One is exclusive, the other is inclusive. One separates, the other embraces. One is trying to reform society and push it into its mold. The other is reforming the society from the way of Jesus, in the way of Jesus. There is no time like the time we have today. We live in a time like no other time in history. We cannot assume that our traditional evangelical messages are being understood as to what they really mean. Christianity has been politically usurped. We must find new ways of living out our faith other than the popular presumptive ones that have been around for the last few decades. We need to internalize our faith and then find new ways to talk about it. We need to work at articulating the meaning of truth and not just brandishing Christian platitudes and buzzwords. Don't trust what comes down the Christian marketing channels. Study the word of God for yourself and translate it into the world around you. These are exciting days to think for yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. We are not cultural Christians. We are Christians living in a foreign culture. One lets the culture speak for it. The other speaks for itself and speaks into the culture the message of Jesus. So how are you doing living in the tension? as an exile in a foreign land. Do people come to you and open up to you about their pain and their problems? That's good. Do they talk to you about your faith or their lack of faith? That's really good. Do do you get in trouble every once in a while, not because of your politics or, 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 or things that are of this world, but do you get in trouble because of what you believe in Jesus? That's really good, my friends, because that's a true test. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the beginning words of Peter that we live as exiles in this world, foreigners, strangers, aliens, temporary residents. As participants at Sunrise Church, God, may we be different. May the world around us see a difference, and may that emanate from our heart and our lives, our, our language, our, our voice, our, our social media accounts, our conversations with neighbors, workers. May what ooze out of us be about Jesus and nothing else. May we spend more time on your word and allowing your spirit to speak to us than taking in other forms of communication and media, other messages. May we align ourselves more with Jesus and his compassion for the lost than getting into cultural wars with people because they don't line up with what we do and say. Father, I, I long to see a nation come to Jesus, but it'll only happen when we put on the lenses the glasses of Jesus, and see as he saw, and speak as he spoke, and act and love as he did, we pray in your name. Amen.